You're listening to audio from Memphis Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit memphiscc.info. Good morning. Good to be with you guys this morning. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. This morning we are going to continue in this series called The Signal of the Savior. And what we are going to be doing this morning is looking at the narrative of redemptive history. The history of God's people and how God has always been with us. In fact, it has always been God's desire to have a dwelling place among his people. It has always been his desire to walk with us and talk with us and have relationship and have friendship with us. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at our Bibles from Genesis chapter 1 all the way to Revelation 22. It's going to take us three or four hours to get through all of it. And we are going to just look at, no, 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 we're going to go through it very fast. Um, But the point is that we get to see all of these places. We're going to stop along the way and see all of these places where God has been, uh, been with us in this great story of redemptive history. We're going to look at it in five acts. And we're going to begin here in Act 1, which is Genesis chapters 1 and 2, um, as we look at how God has been with us. This first act is God with us in the garden. God starts with himself in Genesis 1, the very first words of your Bible. In the beginning, God. God was there in the beginning. And then he continues with his creation of the heavens and the earth, all that you and I see around us and all that we see above us. And we see this repeating refrain throughout the first chapter that God spoke and God created and it was good. God spoke and God created and it was good. Over and over again, day after day, what God shows us is that all that he is creating is good. And then we get to the sixth day. And God says this. He says something interesting in verse 26. He says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And it's in the way that God phrases this statement that gives us an important clue into his nature and the way that he created us to be. See, when he says, let us make, What he is showing about himself is that he himself exists in relationship with himself. And we understand as we read our Bibles that God exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all three of these persons exist in perfect unity and harmony within themselves, loving one another perfectly. And so God lives in relationship with himself. But then he said, let us make mankind in our image. And what that shows is that God is relational and he created you and me to be relational. And we we know that we are relational with one another, but God created us first to be relational with himself. So after the work was finished, verse 31 describes all that God had created and it describes it as very good. In fact, it was perfect. Every facet of creation living in perfect harmony and unity within itself, operating exactly the way that God designed it to operate. This perfection extended to his masterpiece, to mankind. Verse 8 of chapter 2 says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. 
Chapter 2 gives us a beautiful picture of this garden, the dwelling place of the first man and woman. But what's striking about the garden isn't simply that all creation operated in perfect harmony and unity or that nothing was created to die or that there was no violence, there was no misunderstandings, no pain, no toil, no hardship. All of those are great, wonderful things that we look back on. But what's striking about it is that God was there. God was there dwelling among his people, among his creation, among humanity. First two human beings were in perfect fellowship and relationship with the one who had created them. There was no separation. Verse 225 says they were both naked and they felt no shame. They felt no shame. It means that they were able to stand before God completely exposed and without fear, that kind of fear that comes from disobedience. When I was a child and I did something that I knew that I shouldn't have done, what was my response? It was to hide. It was to run away from mom and dad. But Adam and Eve, they felt none of this fear to hide, none of this shame. They had nothing to be guilty for. They were able to walk with God. And they were able to talk with God. And they were able to have perfect friendship with God. They enjoyed relationship with him, and he enjoyed relationship with them. Exactly the way things were designed to operate he dwelt with them in the garden, and it was very good. Now, unfortunately, we know that that didn't last long. Because Adam, the first representative of all humanity, the representative of you and me, chose something different. He chose something less than good. He chose to reject this perfect relationship that he enjoyed with God, and he chose to be his own God. And you and I have been choosing that ever since. With this rejection came the curse. With this rejection came pain and toil and hardship. But worse than all of those things, separation. Separation between man and God. The saddest verse in the Bible, I, I think, is Genesis 3.10. Adam says to God, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Why is it the saddest verse? Because it points to the deepest problem with sin. It's separation between us and God. What came next was banishment from this perfect place where God dwelt with his people. They had to leave the garden and they had to leave God's presence. And the rest of history has been God working to get us back there to get us back to that place where we could be in perfect relationship with him, where we could once again have friendship with God. That has always been the plan. And in fact, the narrative of your Bible is God working that plan out, getting us back to that place. And that plan progresses in Genesis chapter 12, if you want to flip over there in your Bibles. It's act two, God with us through the nation of Israel. This time it would be through the call of a man whom God told to leave his country, to leave his household, to leave his family and all that he knew to head to a place that he could only dream of, a place that he didn't know where he was going. And with the call came a great promise. Verse 2 in chapter 12, God says to Abram, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. 
I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's a significant statement. That all peoples on earth will be blessed through Abram. God is speaking of the coming nation of Israel that would start with this man, with Abraham, and continue through his son Isaac, and through Isaac's son Jacob, and through Jacob's 12 sons, who would represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And God had a very specific purpose for this people. It's hinted at within the promise that all peoples on earth would be blessed through them. That when the other nations looked at Israel, they were supposed to recognize that God was still dwelling among his people. That he hadn't completely abandoned them. They were to be the public display of God's glory to the rest of the world. He would go with them and dwell within their midst. And in fact, multiple times throughout their history, we can see the very glory of God living in their presence. We see God's glory descend on Mount Sinai as he came to give them the, the, the Ten Commandments and the law. We see God's glory leading them in, in a cloud by day and in fire by night. We see God's glory filling the tabernacle that they would carry with them to represent God's presence with them. And then later we would see this same glory fill the temple in Jerusalem. Jerusalem represented the capital city of God's people and the place where he would dwell with them, and the place where they would worship him. God's presence was with them. More than any other nation, they got to dwell with God. But there was a significant difference between God dwelling with the Israelites and God's relationship with Adam and Eve and that relationship that they enjoyed with God before they rebelled. And we see this difference most starkly in Exodus chapter 20. We set the scene as God is about to descend on Mount Sinai, just as we talked about. That he's come to give the Ten Commandments and the law, these, these boundaries, these regulations for his people that were meant to protect them. They were meant to show them how to live well and how to live in God's presence. His glory is about to descend on this mountain, but before it descended, preparation had to be made. The people had been instructed to purify themselves, to consecrate themselves, to get ready three days before it would happen, and they weren't to go near the mountain or touch it because God said if they did, then they would be killed, and already we see the difference. The Adam was able to live with God without fear, but look at verse 18 of chapter 20. When the people saw the thunder and lightning, and they heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. They don't even want to hear God's voice because it made them so afraid. And so they said, we need someone to stand in this gap. We need someone that can speak to us what God wants us to hear because we can't listen to him ourselves. We're too sinful to be in his presence. See, for Adam, being in the presence of God in Genesis 2 was pure joy, but for this nation, his presence evoked fear and trembling, a demand for a mediator, for someone to stand in 
the gap so that they didn't hear his voice. Even though God was with them, there was still separation because of their sin, and the rest of their history would be marked by this disobedience. It's the rest of the Old Testament. is the history of this people. And God displaying his glory to them into the world by saving them and drawing them back to himself, oftentimes through judgment. It's the pattern. Israel would disobey, so God would punish them, but that punishment was restored. It was to draw them back, and they would come back to him, and they would enjoy his presence for a little while longer, and then they would disobey again, and the pattern would begin over and over again. That's the history of the Israelites. But in spite of their continued lack of trust and faithfulness to him, God continues to be faithful to them as he over and over again draws them back to himself. If you look for this in your Old Testament, you see it over and over again. God drawing this people, drawing the world back to himself. In fact, it's in the promise of punishment given through the prophets that God shows a new day is coming. That one was coming who would stand in the gap. Who would stand between them and himself. And we could point to any number of the hundreds of prophecies that point towards Jesus Christ. But I recently ran across Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3 verse 8. God says, I'm going to bring my servant. I'm going to bring the branch. When Jesus is called the root of Jesse, the branch. And I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. The prophecies that talk about the one who is coming, who is going to create a new day. Removal of sin signifies removal of separation. A restoration of this people, of all peoples, to God in a single day. And the branch to which Zechariah is referring, the one who would remove the sin of the people in a single day, makes his entrance in chapter 1 of both Matthew and and Luke's gospel after a 400-year period of silence between the Old and New Testaments. It's called the silent period because we don't really have any writings from God at this time. It seemed like God had gone quiet. It seemed like God had abandoned his people. But the silence ends with God sending his messengers to give good news to three people that the third act was about to begin. That's act three, God with us in Jesus Christ. Luke records for us that the first message was given to a priest by the name of Zechariah, perhaps named after that very prophet who foretold that God was going to remove the sin of the people in a single day. The message to this priest was that he was going to have a son whose purpose was to make ready a people prepared for the Lord, a people prepared for this branch And his son, we know, would become John the Baptist. The second message was given to a young virgin named Mary who was engaged to be married. The message she received in chapter 1 of Luke, verse 31, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. We're going to see that kingdom in a little bit. A third message was given to her soon-to-be husband Joseph in Matthew 1. The messenger says, Don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
She'll give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he'll save his people from their sins. And in these messages, we see Zechariah's prophecy become to be fulfilled. The branch of David who was coming to save his people from their sins. And he wasn't coming in a cloud of glory that was going to fill a temple or hover over a mountain. No, the very glory of God would take on human flesh and spend 33 years being in the physical presence of his people. In Colossians, Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn among all creation, for God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. Think about that statement. The fullness of God dwelt within Jesus Christ. God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him and to reconcile to himself all things. And if we just take a moment and reflect and meditate on that as we think about what it is that we celebrate this coming week, what it is that we'll celebrate in six days, it's not the music that's been playing on endless loops since October. I hate Christmas music. I mean, I love Jesus. I hate Christmas music. They just play it over and over and over again. We don't celebrate the music. We don't celebrate the gifts and the anxiety of wondering if you got the exact right thing for this person or if they're going to give you something and create an obligation for you then to give them something, right? We don't necessarily celebrate the meal and the time with family, although those are great and wonderful things that God has allowed us to do. We certainly don't celebrate the busyness and wondering if there's enough time between now and then to get everything accomplished that we need to get accomplished. We celebrate this reality that when Mary held her son in her arms for the first time, she was literally holding God. She was holding the God of the universe. When she sang over her infant child, she was singing to this God who had created her and yet who had humbled himself enough to take on the flesh of an infant and be completely dependent upon her for life. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas. And we need to get back to this point where we recognize the, the significance of that. And as Jesus grew into a man, he continued to dwell with his people that those who walked beside him were walking beside God. That those who conversed with him were conversing with God. Those who were touched by his hand as he would so often reach out and touch those who he were healing. They were being touched by God. God was pleased to have his fullness dwell within Jesus Christ. The last time that humanity enjoyed this kind of closeness with God was back in the garden. God had never been this close to his people since, since this time. In every sense of the phrase, Jesus was Emmanuel, God with us. And may we get back to that point where we can celebrate this reality of what the coming of the Christ child represented. 33 years seems like such a short time. When you consider the, the span of redemptive history and the reality of the significance of this moment, and yet it only lasted 
for a short time. But we know that God did not come in the flesh. He didn't dwell in Jesus Christ simply in order to experience what it was to be human, even though he very much did that. He certainly experienced pain and, and hardship and mourning and tiredness and hunger and temptation and rejection, all of these things, all of these things that we experience, Jesus Christ experienced, but it wasn't the, the sole purpose for why he came. He didn't come to live out his life and die as an old man. Rather, he came in order to pay the penalty for that sin that has separated us from God. And the only way that he could accomplish that was through the cross. Remember Zechariah's words, I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. And that, that day came as Jesus hung on the cross, declared that it was finished, that he had accomplished what he had come to accomplish, and then he breathed his last, and then he came back to life in order to prove to us that it really was finished. That death really had been defeated. If Jesus were still in the tomb, we wouldn't be sitting here 2,000 years later talking about this. Jesus proved who he said he was by raising from the grave. And yet, even after he rose, he made it plain that he wasn't going to be staying. In fact, he'd been telling his disciples from the beginning. He told them that he had to go, but that he wouldn't leave them as orphans, that he wouldn't leave us as orphans. Earlier, he had told them that it was for their good that he go, and it should leave us wondering, what could be better than this? If, if God hadn't dwelt among his people in this way since the garden, which was very good, then what could be better than God dwelling in this way? What could be better than God with us? Jesus says, what's better than God with us is God in us. Jesus said that when he was gone, his disciples would receive Something They would receive someone who would come in his stead. And if you look over to Acts chapter 2, it ushers in the fourth act in this great story of redemption. It's God with us by the Holy Spirit. After the resurrected Jesus continued to dwell among people, showing himself to hundreds, he ascended back into heaven to take his place at the right hand of God the Father. So the disciples had gone back into Jerusalem and they had gathered at Pentecost. They were all in one place and they were wondering what it was that was going to come. Unsure of the extent of what it was Jesus had promised them because if I read it, it looks pretty clear to me what was going to happen. But I wasn't there. And, I, and, and they hadn't yet experienced what Jesus said was going to happen and so they're, they're wondering what the full extent of this would be. And Luke records for us, beginning in Acts 2, verse 2. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. They began to speak in the languages of the people who had gathered in Jerusalem so that they could be understood in their own language. This is what the Holy Spirit was doing for them. Because at that moment, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, God himself, just as much as the Father is God, and just as much as the Son is God, 
filled the apostles who are waiting in that room. And since that day, 2,000 years ago, he has come to dwell inside all of those who believe in Jesus Christ. God himself dwelling within those who are Christ's followers. See, Jesus had said that it would happen this way. He was speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well, and he said, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You won't have to go to the temple and, and look towards the temple and pray in order to be heard by God. But a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Will worship the God, God the Father by this spirit that he has given them to live inside of them. You and I who get to worship God in this way, with God living inside of us, are more blessed even than those disciples who were the closest to Jesus. Because I sometimes think about how wonderful it would have been to see Jesus' face, to walk with him and talk with him and, and be touched by him. But we're more blessed today. What did Jesus say when he allowed Thomas to touch the scars in his hands? He said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe. That none of us in this room have seen Jesus face to face. Oh, we've, we've seen him work. We've seen him work in our lives. We've seen what he can do, and yet we have not seen his scars. But he says we are more blessed because we have this Holy Spirit who is living inside of us, who is our helper and our advocate and our comforter. And Lord, we need comfort, our teacher and our equipper, the one who shows us when we've wandered off the path and then equips us and gives us what we need to get back on the path, and if you want to see what the Holy Spirit can do, look at Peter before he received it and after he received it. Right? Because before Peter received the Holy Spirit, we see him denying Jesus to save his own life. And yet in Acts chapter 2, after he's filled with the Spirit, he goes out and he, he preaches Jesus Christ at the risk of his own life. He goes out and he says, this is whom you are to believe in in thousands that day believed because the Holy Spirit was inside of him and that same spirit is inside of you and me today. That same spirit who was inside Peter is inside us. This is God with us and this is God in us. This is where we are right now. In this great story of redemption, this is where we are. We started in the garden and then we moved to the nation of Israel, and then we moved to Jesus himself, and now we are at the present. This is where we have been for the last 2,000 years. And you and I cannot overestimate the significance of what it means to live during this time, to live on this side of the cross, inside the second to last act, and one day closer to the final act. One day closer to the finish line. We presently live in this tension, this tension between what has already come and what is yet to come. With Christmas and the arrival of the Christ child, Jesus Christ, God's kingdom, it came to earth. In, in a very literal sense, it came to earth, but this kingdom is not yet completed. It's not been ushered in so that it reigns supreme over every facet 
of life. Because that will come in the final act, the one that is yet to come, God with us in the new Jerusalem. And to see what that looks like, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 12, and we're going to look at Revelation chapters 21 and 22 from beginning to end. So you and I look around our world today, and we still very much see the evidence of the curse and the separation that came in Genesis chapter 3. All that we have ever known is a Genesis 3 world. That's all we've ever known. We, we haven't yet experienced what it is to live in Genesis 1 and 2. And so we look around and we see pain, and we see toil, and we see hardship, and we see death, and we see disease. Viruses still infect. Cancer still grows. Relationships still break down. Tornadoes still rip towns apart. That is a result of the curse. None of these things were to be part of God's kingdom. You know, we often talk about death being natural, but we only say it because it's common. Death is actually very unnatural. It wasn't supposed to be this way. Author and Pastor Dane Ortland writes that we tend to think of miracles, especially Jesus' miracles in the Gospels, as interruptions of the natural order. That we were so used to our fallen world in, in Genesis 3 that sickness and disease and pain and death seem natural. They seem that that's the way it's supposed to be, and yet those are the interruptions. Those are what get in the way of the natural order. And so when God chooses to miraculously heal someone of cancer, it's him breaking through the curse and showing us just a small glimpse of the way things are supposed to be. The natural order of things, the way things were when he walked in the garden with Adam and Eve and they felt no shame, no separation. So when God shows us a miracle, he's also giving us a glimpse of what will be, of what was in Genesis 1 and 2 when he created all things and it was very good to what things will be in the new Jerusalem. Verse 1 of Revelation 21 gives us the picture. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, look. God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. God himself will dwell with them. He will be their God and they will be his people. And what John is describing here in, in the best way that he can because human language can't possibly reflect what is really going on here. And yet John is expressing in the best way that he can this moment when the very kingdom of God will descend on the earth in its complete fullness. It was inaugurated when the Christ child was born, but it will be consummated when the holy city, the new Jerusalem, comes down out of heaven. Just as the old Jerusalem was the historical capital of God's people, so will this new Jerusalem be the capital of God's people. God's dwelling place. It'll be the, the capital of this heavenly kingdom. 
that will never end. Remember, he said Jesus' kingdom will never end. And verse 4 says, He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death, no more mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That is an amazing promise. A return to the way things were supposed to be. A return to that moment when everything was completed and very good. It's the land of no more. No more violence. No more misunderstandings. No more pain. No more toil. No more disease. No more death. But what's striking about it, even as great as that promise is, and and we, we look forward to that because all we've known is the Genesis 3 world. We look forward to that great and wonderful promise, but what's striking about it, as great as that promise is, is that God is there. God is there once again dwelling among his people in perfect relationship and friendship. If we are to look forward to anything in the new Jerusalem, it is that reality, that God is there. And there will never again be a time in which it feels like he's far off. There will never be a time where I wonder if God hears my prayers. There will never again be a time where I question whether he's really there and whether he's really for me and whether he really loves me. No more separation. The author Hebrews gives us a picture of what that would be like in chapter 12. I love Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews is my my favorite book in the Bible because what the author of Hebrews does is he looks back at the Old Testament. He puts everything together for us and he shows us why it is that Jesus had to come and why it is that we can trust in him for our salvation. He, He makes an airtight case for it. And then he gets to chapter 12. He's been building this argument up for the first 11 chapters and we get to chapter 12. And he begins chapter 12 by creating a contrast between the Israelites who were gathered there at Mount Sinai when God's glory had descended on the mountain and what it will be like in this new Jerusalem. He starts in verse 18 by telling us that we have not come to that mountain. We have not come to Mount Sinai. We have not come to darkness, gloom, and storm. We've not come to a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them for fear of death. He says, we've not come to that place. Verse 22, he says, you have come to Mount Zion. You've not come to Mount Sinai. You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And what have you come to? You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Picture that. Thousands upon thousands of angels worshiping and praising this God who has made all of this possible. You've come to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, the one who would perfectly stand in the gap between us and God. And you've come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. 
Look at that. How could you not get excited by that imagery of what this new Jerusalem will be like? Thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, and we get to join them. We are the spirits of those who have been made righteous. We are the names of those who have been written in heaven. Abel's blood cried out for justice and punishment when his brother murdered him. But Jesus' blood cries out for mercy and forgiveness. No more guilt. No more shame. No more separation. Revelation 22 says that there will no longer be a curse and we will see his face. We will see his face. I am 36 years old. What does that mean? That means that I have, what, 50, 60 more years before I get to see God's face? What a short amount of time that is. And so what's the promise for us? The promise is that no matter what we are facing today in this Genesis 3 world, no matter what toil and hardship and pain and disease and death we are facing today, all of us are such a short time away from seeing God's face. That is our hope. That is what we are eagerly looking forward to. That is our anticipation. And that is what keeps us enduring until the time when we will experience it firsthand. Today, you are one day closer. We are one day closer to that time when Jesus will either come for us personally or he will come for all of us. And this new Jerusalem will descend out of heaven and we will live in God's presence and he will dwell among his people. Verse 25, with this great promise comes a warning. He says, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. See, some in this room continue to refuse the invitation. Continue to refuse this this great story of salvation that God has been orchestrating since the very beginning. You're still listening to Abel's blood that's crying out for justice. And you've missed Christ's blood that's crying out for mercy and forgiveness. And so don't refuse him who speaks. He's spoken to you today. Don't refuse it. If you want to be in that joyful assembly of thousands upon thousands of angels, if you want to have your name written in heaven, if you want to be the spirit of one who has been made righteous so that you yourself can worship and praise this God who has made all of this possible, then don't refuse the one who speaks. Because if you do, then that day will not be a day of joy. It'll be a day of terror, trembling, and fear. God has extended the invitation to you to accept Jesus Christ, to accept the promise of salvation and what he has done, and and we look forward to that final act. And so don't refuse. Respond if you need to respond. Let's stand up and let's pray. Oh, Father, we we look forward to this day. Lord, we are so close. 
We're so close. I praise you that we are on this side of the cross, that we, we have the full picture, and yet we can only dream of what that last act will look like. We can't even imagine it because our minds can't get there. But Lord, by, by your word, you've given us a glimpse. You've given us a, a, a small piece of it. And Lord, that even that small piece is enough, but we know it's so much more. And so we look forward to that day, Lord, that, that time where there will be no more curse. But even more significant than that, that time when we will get to dwell with you and see your face. Lord, keep us until that day. And for those who have not yet responded, for those who have refused you up to this point, Lord, draw their hearts to yourself that they would know Jesus Christ and be able to look forward to that day with joy and anticipation. Lord, we're one day closer. Keep us. Guide us and protect us that you would be our God. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.